Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Sword. Juno. Gold. Utah. Omaha. Those are the names of the beaches of Normandy. If you were to go there today on those beaches, you would find them covered in monuments. But if you'd gone there in June of 1944, you'd find them covered in carnage. Because it was on those beaches that the great invasion of Europe by the Allied armies fighting the Nazis began. It was at that point, crossing the English Channel, that those armies flooded in to begin a great conquest, a conquest which had seemed just a few years before unimaginable. Everything was at stake. They were risking everything in a precarious operation, the likes of which the world had never seen. They had to cross that channel 20-odd miles. They had to go up against a fortified coastline. And as you can imagine, facing such odds... A lot of different plans, a lot of different strategies had been put forward how to accomplish the task, how to win the battle. All sorts of of clever ideas had been um, put forward. Here's a plan that was never put forward. Here's an idea nobody had. Nobody suggested that the way to invade Normandy was not to build any boats, not to have any landing craft, but instead to pick out a really fine copy, a first edition of the King James Bible, hand it over to C.S. Lewis and the Archbishop of Canterbury, have the armies line up behind them, and have them walk to the English Channel, hoping that when they approached, the waters would part, and the armies could march over on dry land. As far as I know, as a history buff, nobody ever suggested it. Nobody floated the idea. Nobody had that thought. And nobody suggested that as the armies cross over on dry land with the Archbishop and C.S. Lewis in the lead, that they stop, they pause at the center of the English Channel and look around for some appropriate stones to pick up and carry with them. So that once they reached the beaches, the first thing that they could do is build a monument to what had just happened. Maybe it wouldn't have seemed like such a great plan. After all, it it would have relied on some unlikely contingencies coming to pass, parting of water, that sort of thing. Also, it gets things a little bit out of order because usually you don't build your monuments before you've won your victories. You build your monuments afterwards. In order to win a victory, you've got to fight for it. As implausible as that is, as as crazy as it seems to us to take that familiar crossing and imagine it being done in such a ludicrous way. Last time, in Joshua 3, we read a description of exactly that. The way that the armies of Israel enter into the promised land isn't the smart way. They don't build their landing craft. They don't train really hard. They don't get in their boats and hunker down, ready to fight the moment they reach the opposite bank. Instead, the people line up behind the Ark of the Covenant, which is being hoisted on the shoulders of priests. Not even especially warlike priests. It's not that they were the toughest. 
were just the guys who carried the ark. And the people followed the ark, and the waters parted. And we saw a little glimpse of this in last week's text, but in Joshua 4, it's explained. In Joshua 3, God gives this instruction to Joshua, saying, pick out 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes. And now in chapter 4, we find out the reason for this. And the reason, it turns out, is interesting. As the people are crossing, and the Ark of the Covenant and the priest holding it are standing at the, the center of the Jordan, so the waters are parted, one man from each tribe carries a stone, picks up a stone from the riverbed and carries it with him so that on the far side of the Jordan, their first act when they enter into the land of promise is to erect this monument, this altar, this marker, this indicator. They're going to do that, not prepare for battle, not march on forward to attack, they're going to stop the first thing they do and build a monument to what's just happened. And the question you have to ask is why? And our text this morning answers the question. At the end of chapter 4 of Joshua, we read these words. This is starting in verse 21. He said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for, for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God. So just as he had parted the Red Sea for us, for our generation, he has parted the Jordan for you, for your generation, so that you can march over. And they build the monument so that in generations to come, when their children see the stones, they will ask, what's that all about? What's this pillar of stones for? And the parents can explain to them, those are the stones we took from the bed of the river when God parted the water and we marched across on dry land. We build monuments to remember. We build monuments to remember because we have a tendency to forget. The world wouldn't be covered in monuments if it weren't for the fact that human beings tend to forget. God gives the instruction to these 12 men to select these 12 stones because he wants there to be a monument erected because he wants people to remember what happened here. The very nature of that suggests that God knows they're likely to forget, which seems crazy. How could they forget this? How could they forget the parting of the Jordan? How would they ever need to have some kind of a marker to raise the question? Surely everybody would be talking about it constantly. It was such a great event. No one could ever forget what happened here, monument or not. And yet the sad reality is, yes. Yes, people do forget. God parts the Red Sea, and people forget. God parts the Jordan, and people forget. There's a sense in which the story of the Old Testament, one of the, the threads that you could follow, is this constant forgetting. God doing great things, and the people he does them for, forgetting. 
that that's what took place, forgetting that it ever happened. Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy 32, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The book of Judges, chapter 3, we read, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. The people who a generation before had crossed over the Jordan forgot the God who had led them across those waters. They not only forgot, but they turned to serve the gods of the land. The psalmist says it time and again. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. They forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Jeremiah says, their fathers forgot my name for Baal, as we saw Wednesday in our Ash Wednesday service. Hosea in Hosea 13 says, when they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This forgetting is something built into our fallenness. No matter how great the work, how astonishing the miracle, no matter how large and eye-filling and heart-filling the sign, we as human beings have a tendency to forget. Most of what's happened in human history has been forgotten, which is great for historians. It's not so great for us because, as you know, in that oft-quoted line of uh, George Santayana, if you forget the past, you're doomed to repeat it. But actually, what he says is a little more profound than that, so I'd like you to hear more of the context. This is the larger quote. He says, progress, far from consisting in change, depends on retentiveness. Progress depends on retentiveness. When change is absolute, there remains no being to improve, and no direction is set for possible improvement. And when experience is not retained, infancy is perpetual. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Because those who cannot remember the past have nothing to build upon. Those who have not set up the stones as a memorial to remember what went on are doomed to forget and to repeat their mistakes over and over again. There's a reason why that is such an oft-quoted sentiment. The tragedy is we quote it a lot more often than we practice it. We learn the lesson of it. All too often, we equate progress with erasing the past, with getting rid of everything that went before so that we can be modern. We don't retain experience, which Santayana said was necessary for progress. We don't retain experience. We actually revel in the perpetual infancy that forgetfulness induces. We make the same mistakes. We just call them different things. When we talk about forgetting, it's important to realize that forgetting is, is complicated. Forgetting is more than just failing to recollect a fact. Forgetting is failing to remember the fact. There are things that we recollect, but we don't really remember. There are dates on our bullet point list in our mind that we can fill in the blanks on. Oh, in that year, this happened. Oh, in that year, this document was signed. This change took place. That's recollection. 
but it's not necessarily remembrance. It's not living as if those things happen, living as if those things are true. The problem of Israel is not that it couldn't recollect the facts. Its problem was that it couldn't remember what they meant. It couldn't remember their significance. Now, a memorial does not solve that problem. Building a memorial doesn't solve the problem of lack of remembrance, but it does at least raise the question. Because they took the time to build that memorial, in generations to come, there was a pile of rocks that looked man-made on the banks of the Jordan. And when children saw this, they had to wonder, what is that for? And they probably wondered, can it be climbed as well? And the parents had to say, no, no, don't climb on that. It means something. What does it mean? And when the children ask, God says, here's the answer. He's thinking ahead. He's thinking generationally. I'm giving you something that will cause your children to ask you the question. And I'm telling you what to tell them when they ask. It's interesting how often God does these things. When you look in the book of Exodus and his instructions for the Passover, as the Passover is instituted, the importance of remembrance is built into it. In Exodus 12, God instructs, he says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. It was so important to remember that deliverance, that salvation, that a memorial practice, an annual practice was established. And as part of that practice, there was a mystery, a mystery in the way it was done that didn't always make sense to the children who still had to participate in it. It was natural as they participated in that Passover meal to ask, what does it mean? And then to have it explained to them, this is what it means. We remember the salvation of Israel. The sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper, raises similar questions for us. It is the Passover of the New Testament church. And it's not unusual here at Grace for young children seeing what we do, but not yet admitted to the table to ask their parents, what does it mean? What is it all about? Or to ask their pastor. And it's been our experience that for many young people, their journey towards faith, towards professing their faith begins by seeing the memorial and wondering what it means. God gives us something that, among other things, prompts our children to ask. Now, there's a principle here, I think, that we can learn from, which has to do with how we live our faith. Right? That we live our faith not just for ourselves, not just internally, privately, but we live it publicly. We live it, as it were, as a memorial. We build stones on top of each other to mark the things that God has done in the hope that those practices, that that visible faithfulness will lead others to ask, what does it mean? What is it for? What is it all about? So that we can then answer. 
Because of the Great Commission and because of the mission of the church to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, oftentimes a dilemma that Christians find themselves faced with is how to do that, how to spread the gospel, how to share the gospel. I want to suggest one way to spread the gospel is to start passing it down. One way to spread the gospel is to start passing it down. One of my favorite movies of the 1990s is Whit Stillman's movie, Barcelona, which is about a bunch of clueless Americans in Spain. There's a scene where they're about to go to a wedding, but they've got to kill time. So a couple of Americans are standing around just talking. And one of them leans close to his friend and starts examining his jawline. And he says, you know, it looks like you're shaving against the grain. You've got all of these rashes and everything. It doesn't look comfortable. You're shaving against the grain. The guy he's talking to is astonished. He says, wait a second, what are you talking about? Grain. Shaving against the grain. Are you saying I'm meant to shave with the grain? And the other guys there are like, well, yes, obviously everybody knows that. But he didn't know that. And, and he's gutted, realizing that there's this knowledge that wasn't passed down to him. And he says in frustration, my father never told me he used an electric razor. The reason I love that scene is because it encapsulates in a really humble way a feeling I've had and a feeling I think a lot of us can relate to, that there's some important legacy of knowledge that's skipped over us, that other people know things and seem to think that we all know them, but I don't know that. Like, it missed me somehow. It wasn't passed down to me. Um, I'll speak to men for a moment. I think this is especially true in, in younger men. I have a friend, 20-something friend, who I won't name uh, as much as I really want to. Um, he's obsessed with this blog called The Art of Manliness. And he reads it, he listens to the podcast, and he's always recommending to me things he's learned on The Art of Manliness because he wants to live like John Wayne. And uh, I don't have the heart to tell him. Like John Wayne didn't need to read a blog about manliness. He was just John Wayne. Not only did he not need to, but he wouldn't have done it. Like it would have been contrary to his nature. Like manliness just seems to me like one of those things you don't learn from a blog post. And yet I can relate to his yearning, right? Because he feels like something happened in the in the modern world. Like his dad, metaphorically speaking, was using the electric razor and something important that every man used to know was not handed down. And it's frustrating. You start wondering how many gaps are there in my knowledge, how much of the legacy that should have been mine has been taken from me. It's a feeling a lot of us who've come to the Reformed faith but didn't grow up in it have as well. The whole story of the revival of Reformation theology over the last generation, where all the energy has been, is in rediscovery. Like people who didn't grow up this way and suddenly start reading, suddenly start discovering, and you have this sense like, why was this kept from me? Why was I given this, this, this hollowed out, shallow, uh, reduced Christianity? when there was this rich, all-encompassing legacy of faith that could have been handed down. For some of us, it's a little bit different. Some of us got the legacy, we got the creed, but we got it in an essentially kind of fundamentalist culture. 
So we got a legacy of faith inherited, a legacy of grace inherited in our theology, but not in our church life, which was far from gracious. And we too have a sense of something lost, something skipped a generation, something was missed. But it does, it does raise a question for people like us, for churches like ours, because we might be really good at rediscovery We don't have a lot of experience with passing it down. Is the way that we're going to pass it down to our children, to other generations, to wait until they develop an irrational obsession with the Puritans and then start giving them, like, like books to read? Or is there another way? A lot of times, Reformed churches can can be a lot like Dead Theologians Club. Right? It's all the people who are willing to, to read Puritan reprints and discuss them together in a room, which can be heady and intoxicating for those who love that. But it doesn't translate really well to people who are outside of that. And as you know, the last thing you want to do as a child is embrace the particular nerdiness of your parents that the most embarrassing thing to do would be to follow them down whatever crazy path they've walked down. So it's almost a guarantee that, that if, if your idea of handing down the faith is, let me share with you my nerdy love for uh, Calvin's Institutes, um, the one thing you can be sure of is your kids aren't going to grow up to have a nerdy love for Calvin's Institute. Right? I'm not saying this because I'm happy about it. I hate it, but I think it's true that we have to think differently about how we're going to hand this down. And not just to children, but to anyone, right, who doesn't share whatever the the theological uh, specialization or interest you have is, because the point of it all isn't to be right about the theology. And Westminster Divines didn't get together in a room and say, we should come up with a confession of faith that is so intricate and so precise that anybody who can read through and agree with it all will be such a rarefied nerd that we can accept him as our friends. And when we go to heaven, we will be congratulated for having gotten everything right. Not at all. Not at all. What they thought they were doing was distilling the essentials of the faith in a way that they could be propagated and handed down and understood. Now, the last thing in the world that I would want to counsel you to do is to brainwash. Whether it's your children, your friends, people you try to disciple, share the gospel with. Uh, Mere conformity is never enough. Mere conformity, getting people to behave because it's the right thing to do, it's what it's expected. I think conformity is overrated. And people who learn how to conform in the church... Once they discover there's a larger world out there that has different rules but believes in them just as passionately, those people will easily flip the switch and conform to the world. There's a reason why in Romans 12, Paul does not contrast two kinds of conformity. He does not say, don't be conformed to the world, be conformed to the church. Just don't be conformed, be transformed referring to a spiritual action, not just an intellectual, and be transformed by the truth. So I don't want to brainwash, indoctrinate, force conformity, but on the other hand, I don't want to just leave people on their own without help. You can't pass down the faith 
and just leaving everyone to discover it for themselves. You can't cross the Jordan and then cover your tracks so that anybody walking along the riverside will never know anything happened here unless they discover it for themselves. You want to have the marker. You want to build the monument. You want to pass down your faith. You've got to do it by teaching Scripture, by thinking through the questions that Scripture raises openly, but practicing spiritual, not just intellectual, disciplines, by encouraging belief in others, by praying for them and with them. In other words, you've got to build a lot of monuments, a lot of visible practices that lead to the question being asked, what is this all about? What does it all mean? What is it all for? And when the questions are asked, make sure that the answer is this, that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Raise the question have the right answer. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. In other words, the victory is won when the Lord leads the way. If you're going to pass down the faith, if you're going to spread the gospel, if you're going to share it with your children or with anyone else, it helps to actually live it. It helps to actually have been transformed by it. The great message of the Jordan Monument is that the people of God enter the promise by following him. He parts the water. He leads the way. He wins the victories. That's how it works. That's what the good news is. That was the truth of the gospel rediscovered during the Reformation. The Lord leads the way, gaining the victory. All of our monuments, in other words, all of our practices, all our visible exercises of faith should point to him, not just to ourselves. I think for a long time now, well-meaning evangelicals have suffered from a memory problem. Recollecting the event, but not remembering what it means. We preach grace, but the grace we preach is a grace that holds open the door so that you can walk in under your own strength. If you imagine that God is standing on the other side of the Jordan, calling to you, saying, come on over, cross on your own strength, then you cannot pass the gospel down because you're not living it. Because that's not the call that God gives to his people. God doesn't say, I'm over here waiting, cross the water and join me. It's God who crosses the water. The good news isn't God did most of the work so that you can do the little that remains. The good news is that God did all the work so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And when he says, build the monument, and then people ask, what does it mean? The answer cannot be, it means if you're good, you could save yourself. And the answer cannot be, no matter who or what you follow, we all end up in the same place in the end. The monument asks a question that has only one answer, just as the Passover meal has only one answer, and the Lord's Supper has only one answer. The Lord leads his people into the promise. And the only way to cross over the Jordan is to follow him. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.